The Lord be with you. Thank you very much. Nancy is a little under the weather today, but we expect she will not be under the weather next week. So that's good. So I'm going to be Nancy today. I'll do my best. Um, uh, this is Lint. And um, if, if you don't come from a, a, a tradition that celebrates it, it seems a little superfluous maybe sometimes. Um, uh, I've been hearing this year a number of people who never really did it before are finding a lot of uh, joy and comfort knowing that other people are doing it. And they're, they're all kind of doing the same thing together all across the world. And, and that's, that's a nice thing, that we're not quite so isolated. This year, for me, the, the season of Lent has been overlapped by an, uh, that same sort of season in my own life of giving up and letting go. And, and uh, for me, giving up and letting go, things I wanted to do, things I wanted to be, all that sort of stuff, is painful and is sad and is some regrets to it and there's some loss. And so uh, this morning I was, I was kind of thinking about that and working on it and, and realizing that some of those feelings are legit. So it's, it's not like I gave up boiled cabbage for 42 days. That wouldn't be so hard. Or even chocolate, which I would regret and be sad about, but these are, this is um, uh, because of change in this season of life, and those seasons that I've passed will never return. And so there's some letting go of that that's happening for me right now, probably longer than the, than the 42 days. But that's what we have. Will you pray? Lord, you laid down your life and gave us, uh, gave up everything for us. Let us place your death Excuse me. Let us place our death in yours, the death of our plans, the death of our expectations, the death of our willfulness, the death of our selfish ambitions, the death of our imagined selves. Teach us to accept all afflictions and disappointments, all regrets, so that we may know our great need of you, so we may know your loving care. Take hold of us with your love. Bind our wounds. Make us whole. Make all things new. To know your voice. To know your care. To know your healing presence. So we may freely and wholly give ourselves to you. Amen. George MacDonald was a preacher who got fired from his church for loving too much and believing in God's love too much. He, was, uh, he lived in the 19th century, and C.S. Lewis saw him as his mentor and as his, uh, his literary guide. Though C.S. Lewis never met him, he just was very fond of his writings. George MacDonald wrote a poem in which he says, Still am I panting up thy steep stairs. Still am I haunting thy door with my prayers. Oh, wouldst thou not rather come down to my heart and there, O oh my Father, be who thou art? We don't have to beg God 
to be with us this morning. In fact, I think the Holy Spirit, the image of the Holy Spirit as a dove is very apt. If when you're a child, you ever chased seagulls that were on the ground or on sand or tried to chase a bird, you don't catch them that way. Birds respond to stillness. And, you know, I was raised Pentecostal. We didn't know how to be still. We didn't know how to be quiet. And we were always, you know, screaming and crying for the Holy Spirit to descend. And uh, we worked up a lot of emotion, expended a lot of energy, but I won't say that all of it was Holy Spirit. We don't have to, we don't have to try today. That's why we spend a moment in quiet prayer to just allow God to come to us. Can you do that? Can you just rest and allow God to come to you? Relax, slowly draw a deep breath and let your breath one after another remind you that you're here your focus is right now as God meets us and enters us and loves us.
All right. We're in Mark chapter 2 today. I'm in Mark chapter 2 because I'm in Mark chapter 2. You have to be there too. Um, And I'm only going to read one verse and then save it till the end. It's verse 13. He went out again. This is Jesus. He went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. If you haven't noticed... um, Many sermons and many Christian books have a pattern. Uh, The preacher or the author will begin with a problem. And typically, the problem is, here's what Christians are doing wrong. Here's what the church is doing wrong. Or here's what they're not doing that they should be doing. And that's why... The Christian's life is such a mess, or the church is such a mess today. And then uh, in the sermon or the book, they begin to set out the solution to the problem. And then that's, that's the whole book. We need to do more of this. We need to do more of that. We need to do this. We need to do that. And um, it's all about what we're supposed to do and do right. So maybe we're praying, but we're not praying right, so our prayers aren't being answered. So it's about praying right, or it's about not doing something that we've been doing. So every week there are people who go to church to hear their preacher harp on their shortcomings. Sounds pleasant, doesn't it? Uh, You know, it's it's very parental at times. I can remember years ago there was an AM radio station broadcasting from Catalina, and it hit uh, most of uh, L.A. County and Orange County, and, and a bunch of Christian pastors got on it, and several, not a few, uh, Calvary Chapel pastors were on it. And um, there was one Calvary Chapel pastor, and every time he preached, I thought, why do people listen to this guy? He sounds like an angry stepfather, and every week they're getting another spanking or beating. It was just the, just the tone, just his, you know, he, he was always berating the, the people who were coming to his church. And I thought, these people must be really wounded, and, and it must feel like home. You know, like when they were children, it's like this is how they must have been treated. I found out more than 20 years later when his daughter called me because someone told her, wow, you should go to Chuck Smith Jr. because he understands these things and he appreciates them. She was his daughter and she was abused as a child. And I wasn't surprised at all, but I was saddened. But I'm saddened for those people who sit there and, and take it week after week. So, you know, what's my shortcoming this week? Well, I'm not praying enough. I'm, I'm not giving enough. That's a favorite. Um, my faith isn't oh. s- strong enough. But but people go to church and they read these books because they have a hunger for God, because they have a need in their life, and they're they're reaching out to God to respond to that need. They're burdened. They're worn out. They're anxious about their family and the future. Maybe unemployed. Maybe a single mom, a senior citizen, a 
confused teenager. And with the first word that's spoken, get, they get beaten down. And then they're, they're told, here's how you build up. It's always, it's always this. So the way of Jesus is not to condemn or to place a heavy yoke on his followers. He does have a yoke, but he says, my, my uh, yoke is easy and my burden is light. The way of Jesus is to welcome, to clothe, to feed, to heal, to reassure, to love. Mark tells four episodes in the story of Jesus here in this chapter. And this is the beginning of Jesus' run-ins with the religion police. And the religion police are those who know that they're perfectly righteous and they know what's wrong with everyone else. And they're very liberal in their education of others, uh, very liberal in telling people how they're going wrong. And they are like a dark cloud that hovers over this chapter. It's almost like they're tracking Jesus. He wasn't looking for trouble, but he was, he was getting into trouble. And they were questioning him. They were questioning his words and his actions, or they were questioning what his disciples were doing. So Mark is introducing us to the kind of conflict Jesus is going to have through the rest of his ministry from this community in particular, uh, who we will call today the religion police. And I just like that term because I've known these people. Uh, I, I was raised under their influence, Sunday school teachers, youth pastors, um, senior pastors. And I was always getting in trouble, not for doing things like Jesus did, but just doing it for my own, my own things. But they, these questions that, that they ask persist throughout the chapter. In fact, these, these questions form the plot of this chapter and move it along. Uh, and each question begins with why. Why is this man saying these things? And, and so on. And because of these questions, they're pressuring Jesus to defend himself or to defend the actions of his disciples. And Jesus responds. And he responds as we would expect. His responses are beautiful. They're, they're put together well. And, and each one has a revelation in it. Uh, typical to his style, he'll use analogies, uh, word pictures, and an example from the Old Testament. And, uh, okay, I, wanna, I just want to remind you, I'm not teaching through Mark. This is not a Bible study so much. I'm just sharing with you meditations that I've had over the years when I, in my own personal time in Scripture, in Mark. So, so you know, nothing exciting here, just, just little thought bombs. 
and uh, yeah, that are going to explode in your heart. Uh, so be careful. Um, what is what is Mark wanting us to get out of each of these stories? Why does he even bring up this negative? You know, Jesus being criticized. Well, I believe that he wants to give us a glimpse of Jesus and the mystery that he is. Because God's light is shining through Jesus all the way through. So what I want to do here is look at the person of Jesus and see what he is. Um, okay. For example, first of all, in, in the first story, he is the son of man. And the question is, why is this man talking like this? And just briefly, here's what happens. Uh, Capernaum was a lovely little seaside village. And Jesus had been there before, first chapter mark. He returned there, and he's teaching in someone's home. And there's a crowd. Because now he has a reputation, and when people hear he's in town, they throng him. There are four men who, who come to this home with a friend who's paralyzed. And they can't get to Jesus. The, the crowd is out the doors of the home, into the garden, and, the, and up to the gate surrounding. They can't get to him. But they're desperate. So they go to the house next door, climb up on the roof, Carry this man, I'm sure he's enjoying the ride. Um, carry this man across one roof to another, dig through the roof, and then they lower him down in front of Jesus. So Jesus is there teaching, and all of a sudden there's a skylight, <laughs> and this guy's, you know, coming down through the roof, and I'm sure people are gasping, and what in the world? And Jesus looks up into the skylight, and he sees these four faces anxiously looking down. And he sees the, the guy on the stretcher. And, and what he sees is their faith, Mark says. I think that most preachers would find this greatly disturbing, that this would be unnerving for them. And, and they'd be looking for the bouncers or, or ushers or, you know, uh, somebody es escort this guy out, you know, Fix, you know, patch that roof. We got. I have to finish my sermon, and uh, and Jesus is nonplussed. He's just he just takes over. He's as calm as can be. I've said before regarding Lonnie Frisbee. Lonnie Frisbee was at the epicenter of the Jesus movement at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa when it started to explode, and. Lonnie had this, this gift of God to read people and to read situations. And, and I've said before that my thought of how he prepared to speak when he was going to teach a Bible study was that on the way he prayed, oh God, please make something weird happen so that I can use my gifts and you know, have a great message.
Okay, there's a, a movie now uh, showing called Jesus Revolution. Uh, a character plays Lonnie in it, and um, he, it's, he's not actually a character of Lonnie. He's a caricature of Lonnie, um, and he doesn't get close to to the person. But in this movie... There's uh, a Presbyterian church. Oh, the whole story is so, to me, so interesting. All these lines connect. Uh, my dad was a pastor originally in a denomination called the Foursquare Church. Um, and few people know of the Foursquare Church or Amy Semple, Semple McPherson, the founder. Um, the Roman Catholics who lived behind on the other side of the alley behind our house, because our, our, our parsonage, our, our home was right there on the church property, the, uh, the Catholic kids sang, uh, four squares made for squares. And um, I internalized that and was screwed up from then on. <laughs> so, um, okay, so my dad was moved to this church in Los Serranos. Have you ever been to Los Serranos? Well, it doesn't exist anymore. It's now Chino Hills. But then it was like ranch houses and people had horses and cattle and, and we lived right in, in the hub of Los Serranos. And somehow this woman, Joan Baker, had heard of my dad. She was an Episcopalian. In terms of sociology, Episcopalians are in the upper class and Pentecostals are lower class. And, and, and we were unknown. We were this poor, lower-class Pentecostal family. But she had heard of my dad. Well, in large part, due to her life and message and to another Episcopalian, a priest by the name of Dennis Bennett, the charismatic movement hit the Episcopal Church and the Roman Catholic Church. And some Episcopalians went to her and said, wow, we're just discovering the Holy Spirit. We're speaking in tongues, but we don't even know what the Bible says about this. We need a Bible teacher. She says, I've heard of a good Bible teacher who is Pentecostal. His name is Chuck Smith, and he's in Los Serranos. And they invited him to Upland and Ontario. He's teaching these Bible studies. And one guy in these Bible studies was a man by, by the name of Fred Waugh. And Fred Waugh and his family came to love my dad. Fred Waugh was an elder at All Saints Episcopal Church. And Calvary Chapel was moving out of Orange County, uh, some of the Christian hippies went up to Riverside and began evangelizing there in the park, and people started coming to faith. And this Episcopal church said, we want to be part of this, which is wonderful. They said, we want to be part of this. And Fred Waugh came down to my dad's church and said, can you send us a gifted person to teach a Bible study in Riverside? And he went to Lonnie and he said, would you go to Riverside and teach us Bible study? And Lonnie said, yes. In the movie, he said, no. Lonnie said, yes. And in a short time, there were 300 to 350 hippie young people, teenagers, in that church every Sunday night when Lonnie would speak. Lonnie decided to move to Florida. When he did, 
he handed that Bible study to Ken Gullickson. And Ken Gullickson, who had started the, the vineyard churches, Ken Gullickson, oh, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm doing it anyway. Um, Ken Gullickson, um, after a while, um, the church was pressuring him to become their youth pastor. Well, you know, around Calvary Chapel and the hippies, no one wanted to be on staff at a church. No one wanted to have hours that they were responsible for. I mean, you know, maybe they're casting out demons the night before and wanted to sleep in the next day. Uh, no one wanted that, what seemed like that kind of a, a rigid setting, even if it meant a, a salary. So Ken Gullickson was, was done with it. And he said, you might try Chuck Smith Jr. Huh? Who's that? Um, I, I had started a small church in 29 Palms, California. So Fred Wad drove out there one day with another elder and said, would you teach at this church? And, uh, and that's what I want to tell you about when I was there. After me, when they were pressuring me to be on staff, I went to Tom Stipe, Calvary and Coastman. He's on staff there. And I said, hey, this is a really cool Bible study. I think you'd do well. And uh, it could be a, a really good gig for you because, you know, they're offering a salary for a paid position. And he said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. But he said, I think Greg Laurie might work out. And I said, the cartoonist? The comedian? Greg? You're the same guy? And he said, yeah, yeah. He says he's been teaching home Bible study or uh, uh, Bible studies on church, uh, school campuses. He's good. The first time I was asked to perform a wedding was when I was teaching that Bible study in Riverside. And sweetheart and angelic young Christian woman um, was totally deaf. Glenn had some help with hearing, with hearing aids, but he was mostly deaf too. And I sat down with him on several occasions. And one time it was just Glenn and I. Glenn told me he was out cruising one Sunday night with some friends and they, they saw all these cars with young people in, in them and they decided to follow him. Hey, it's a party. And they pulled into this church parking lot. And they get out and then they say that they're all carrying Bibles. So they start making fun of him. He said that we, we, we were flicking cigarette butts at him and calling him names, Jesus freaks, things like that. Didn't bother anybody. Glenn's friends took off, but he was curious. So he goes into the back of the church. There's a foyer and there's glass windows. He is watching Lonnie in front of, you know, 300 people talking, not really getting what's going on because he can't hear it. He's separated by this glass wall anyway. And Lonnie was into his talk when Glenn had a panic attack. Though the way he described it, it wasn't panic, it was terror. He didn't know what was going on, but he burst through the back doors of the sanctuary and screaming his lungs out, ran all the way to the front where Lonnie was and then fell down in front of the stairs in front of Lonnie. And people are agitated, moving around. Um, I'd be... I'd be looking for guards or something. Help me, help me. Um, so I, I'm amazed as I'm hearing this. He said, Lonnie, 
lifted him up by the shoulders, said, everyone, calm down. This man is under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And in front of everyone, he led him to Christ. Glenn and Ann stopped by uh, the church I used to pastor about, oh, I don't know, it's probably been uh, 20 years. And they were 30 years into their marriage with children, still doing wonderfully well. And that was his moment of conversion. When the roof opened above Jesus and the sky came down, Jesus was perfectly comfortable with that. He looked at the man, he he could see their faith, and he said to to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Which right at that moment, if I was one of the friends, I'd say, what? His sins. You know, we were expecting something a little bit bigger than that. You know, we we brought him here here to be healed, and you're just going to tell him his sins are forgiven? And I've realized I've never understood that story because I don't know what Jesus saw when he looked at him. I don't know what Lonnie saw when he looked at Glenn. But he saw something that led to Glenn's salvation. And maybe this guy's sins were a bigger issue for him than his paralysis. Maybe he was healed right in that moment. Maybe the the, the deep healing took place. I'm guessing. But here are the religion police sitting around saying, how can this man say that? Who does he think he is? They, they ask two questions. Why does he say this? Only God can forgive sins. He's blaspheming. Okay, so that that's the story, and I'm sticking to it. Um, the religion police we're asking two questions. Why and who? Why does he say this? And who is he? Uh, or who can forgive sins but God alone? Now they're just thinking. It's not saying out loud, but Jesus perceives that they're thinking this. And he called them out and he offers them a demonstration. He says, well, Okay, I told him his sins are forgiven. You can't see that. We, we can't know that. I have the authority to do that, but you don't know that. Is it any more difficult to, ta- to, to say to him, stand up, grab your stretcher, and walk. You're free to go. What's, what's more difficult? Well, one is much more visible. If Jesus tells him to get up and he can't get up, then maybe Jesus can't forgive sins either. But the guy stands up, grabs his stretcher, and he leaves. And, and of course, the, the bystanders are all amazed. And Jesus says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The, he, he likes referring to himself as the Son of Man. He doesn't say the Messiah has authority on earth to forgive sin. He could, but he never says that. This is his preferred reference to himself, the son of man. And it couples him with us because we're all sons of men and women. In fact, Jesus will use the same language, same words, in the plural, 
the sons, um, referring to all humankind in the next, just the next chapter, verse 28, chapter three. So, so he really puts himself among us. He is human as we are, but he's more because he can forgive sins and, and he can hear, heal the paralytic. Has authority to forgive sins on earth. Why did he add that? If he has the authority to forgive sins, isn't that a blanket statement? Don't, can't we assume on earth, anywhere on earth, heaven or earth? I think that, well, how I take that in my meditation when I read it is that on earth is, this is where we live. This is where we suffer. This is where we sin. And he has the authority where we live to, to work this miracle in us and, and to change and, and fix us. So forgiveness is healing and it's the beginning of healing and it goes to the deepest roots of what's wrong in us and, and works magic there. So Jesus is the son of man. And the next story, Jesus is a physician and the religion police are asking why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Mark describes a shocking scene. And the first shock is that Jesus asks a tax collector to follow him and to join his crew of disciples and who become apostles. Now, it wasn't a big deal. Jesus asked fishermen, and he can make this, this nice equation of, I will make you fishers of men. But a tax collector? They were, they were bottom rung of, of Jewish society. They were not loved people. And they're always lumped together with sinners. Jesus, that's the first shock is Jesus calls Matthew to be a disciple. Now we don't know how this worked, but apparently Jesus gives, or Matthew gives Jesus an invitation to his house, I want you to come to a dinner at my house. And when Jesus gets there, well, it's Matthew's community. It's Matthew's friends described as tax collectors and sinners. So this is another shock. And, and not only this, it says that Jesus was reclining at table. That's how they ate. They would lie on the ground and the table was very low to the ground and they could reach the food while leaning on one elbow, they could with their other hand reach the food. And it was a, a very uh, communal style, very, you know, the idea of, of we're all together and that sharing a meal binds us together. And here Jesus is reclining at the table and it says, and there were tax collectors and sinners reclining at table with him. And this would be shocking. But he's a good man. He, he, he's, he's a teacher of God's truth. What's he doing with these sinners? And the religion police are very upset about this and they criticize, why is he doing this? When I came to this passage in 2008, I was reading the New American Standard Bible. And 
in my meditation that day, I wrote, the New American Standard has a note in the margin for the word sinners. It is irreligious Jews. In other words, they're explaining what sinners means, irreligious Jews. I'm not sure why this notation was placed there because there's nothing in the original language to justify it. It was someone's interpretation of the kind of guests who were present at Matthew's dinner party. The attempt to soften the word sinners is pathetic. When I came to this marginal note, I added a prayer to my meditation. Forgive us, O God, that we deny Jesus' descent into the dark places among the truly sinful. We try to protect the purity of his image. We try to tell other Christians that it is not okay to hang out with sinners. Forgive us for trying to justify our resistance to being among people who do not share our faith or are antagonistic to it. Forgive our resistance to loving them, even though that is what the Lord taught us by his example. Don't let us forget what we were. I am forever amazed and grateful for Jesus' answer to them. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinner isn't a dirty word to me. It's, it's, it's something we all share in common. And I'm one of Jesus' patients. If you're not a sinner, well, all I can say is, then Jesus didn't come for you. He's not calling you because he came to call sinners. And because I'm one of his patients, I'm his problem. I mean, ultimately, I'm not supposed to transform myself. I'm to cooperate with his transforming of me. I cannot heal myself any more than that paralytic could of himself stand up and carry his, his stretcher. Jesus moves among the broken people, caring for them, defending them, uh, defending his love for them. Because that's who he came to reach. Jesus is a physician. Next, Jesus is a bridegroom. Um, he's asked by the religion police, uh, this time a, a different group, but they said, why do the disciples of John fast and the disciples of the Pharisee fast but your disciples just eat and eat and eat. They never, we never see them fast. And Jesus says, well, if you're at a wedding and the bridegroom is present, are you going to fast then? <coughs> no, that's, that's a time of joy. It's not a time of fasting. I, I see another question here that's not asked, but I think is implied <laughs> or I'm sorry, this is definitely my interpretation, and it's definitely skewed. But what I hear is them saying, how come your disciples 
aren't as dismal, unpleasant, and depressing as John's disciples and the Pharisees and the scribes. How come your, your disciples don't walk around with gloomy faces like they've been baptized in lemon juice? And the answer is because they're at a wedding, not a funeral. They had not learned to be miserable, not from Jesus. They had his forgiveness, his help, his love. They had hope. And they were following Jesus, not religion. And religion has a tendency to make people unpleasant. Now, Jesus went on to use analogies. He, he said, I mean, first he says, well, here's why. And, and then he says, look, you're not going to take a new patch, a, a, a piece of new cloth for a patch on an old garment. Because what happens when you wash that new cloth, it's going to shrink. And then you're going to tear the garment that's already been shrunk. And you're not going to be able, you're not going to have a patch or a garment. He says, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. They would, uh, they would use a fresh uh, goat skin sewn, sewn up. Uh, to put new wine in, and that wine, as it would ferment, would cause the wineskin to expand, and then it would harden in that shape. And the effervescence of new wine could burst an old wineskin, and then Jesus says, you lose the wine and, and your wine bottle. So, uh, I think this is such an important addition, and we, you know, we shouldn't just fly past this, There is a positive aspect to wine in scripture. The psalmist said, for instance, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the hearts of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So the, the kind of fasting that they did was a routine piety, a duty. And, and Jesus' first miracle in John's gospel is to turn water into wine at a wedding. And there you have the wedding, the bridegroom, the joy, and the wine. The old religious system was not ready for this. The old wineskin could not accommodate the work that Jesus was doing. The system was too fixed and static. And Jesus brings the Spirit of God who is dynamic. Some Christians believe there's a spiritual advantage to fasting, that fasting adds an energy to prayer or, or something like that. And I've always wondered about that. Because every spiritual need that we have is met in Jesus. Fasting is a way of expressing grief and contrition. That's how it works in scripture. So if you're grieving, I, you know, I, there's a time in my life when I was in the most intense period of grief in my life because the loss was the most intense loss ever. And I, I thought one day, if I could isolate that grief neurotransmitter 
and make a synthetic version, I'd be a billionaire because you lose weight when you grieve. I did not want to eat. I, there, there are times when I had not eaten all day and a plate of food was set in front of me. I was at a friend's house and he had been barbecuing steaks and just the smell of it was wonderful and I was looking forward to eating it. I took one bite and I could not eat anymore because I couldn't escape the grief that was haunting me. And that's when you fast and you do it automatically, really. You don't, you don't even have to say, well, I'm going to fast on Tuesday. Okay, so Jesus is a bridegroom and Jesus is like King David. Years ago, I learned... Oh, and the question is, why are your disciples doing that which is not lawful? Years ago, I learned from a seminary professor something really important. He said, the scriptures are inspired, but our interpretation of the scriptures are not. I've grown in my understanding of scripture and my interpretations have changed over the years. And sometimes it's our spiritual growth that changes how we interpret the scripture. Sometimes it's our, our acquired knowledge of the Bible, the whole thing. And that affects our interpretation of scripture. Sometimes it's a change in culture. The scriptures are dynamic. If you think, well, you know, um, Scripture doesn't conform to culture. We have to, you know, make culture conform to scripture. That's not how the scriptures work. They are dynamic. So, so in the early part of the 20th century, fundamentalist Christians said women could not wear slacks. Some of them said women cannot wear makeup. It's in the Bible. It's how they interpret different passages of, of the Bible. During World War II, Rosie the Riveter went to work in factories and women, it does not make sense for them to wear dresses in these factory jobs. They began wearing slacks, military slacks, but they began wearing slacks and that became a fashion alternative. I think some of those women were like, wow, now I know why guys like these so much. <laughs> um, I don't have to you know, worry about if it's windy or you know, this is nice. They're comfy and they're warm in the winter. Um, and there are still some holdovers from the old era who say the Bible teaches women should not wear slacks. The Bible never says women should not wear slacks, but it's how they interpret it. A certain part. So our interpretations are not inspired. And however the scripture speaks to you today, that may be inspired in that moment and it may give you a boost of energy, a leap of faith, but it may not always be the way you see that scripture speaking to you. Okay, so... Jesus' disciples were not breaking any Sabbath law. They were on their way somewhere, maybe to the synagogue. It's the Sabbath. And there's, they pass a grain field. They're hungry, no breakfast. Um, look, Lord, it's whole grain. 
cereal. It's good for you. So they, they grab a handful, they rub it in their hands to get the chaff off the wheat, and they eat the kernel. This is allowed in the law. People were not to reap the edges of their property. They were to allow the, the parts of their property that went by a roadway. They were to allow it to be there for travelers, for the poor, for strangers. The disciples aren't doing anything wrong. But it's the Sabbath. And one of the Sabbath laws is you shall not do any work on the Sabbath. Ho, ho, ho. No work at all. You know, for the disciples. But the, the religion police are saying, oh, they're working on the Sabbath. They're threshing wheat. Right? They're not using a tool. They're not at a threshing floor. They're on the move. And it's how they've interpreted the law. They're not breaking the law. Why are your disciples doing what is not lawful? Jesus accepts that. Not, not that he agrees with them. He doesn't you know, give all the stuff I just said, because I'm not Jesus and I have to say a lot more than he does. But he he's took it at face value and said, well, didn't you ever read what David did when he and those with him were hungry? How they went into the temple and they, ra- they, they ate the holy bread that only the priests were to eat. Okay, so he uses this analogy. It's rather daring because Jesus is comparing himself to David and David's companions. And here's Jesus and his disciples. And David was able to feed himself and his companions from that holy bread. And it was a bold comparison because the Messiah would be a descendant of David, of King David. And he's saying, I'm just doing what David did. He's my ancestor, after all. But then Jesus made an even bolder statement. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So here are two bookends. The Son of Man, when he healed the paralytic, and now again the Son of Man, who is Lord of the Sabbath, and everything in between now is, is nicely marked out for us by Mark. The Lord of the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, God set strict boundaries for the Sabbath. He had laws about the Sabbath, and he was adamant about those laws. Sabbath keeping was something that was to be kept holy. So who is this son of man that God would make Lord of the Sabbath? And that, that question arises like who it seemed like, why does he say this? Who can forgive sins but God? And who can change the, the Sabbath laws except God or, or change our interpretation of the laws? Jesus has been authorized to make new Sabbath rules. The, the, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. At least he's authorized to correctly interpret the rules that existed so that it, it serves God's purpose of refreshing his people and, and blessing his people. But with Jesus saying this, it rattles the entire law and how they understood it and how they used it because they used the law like a, 
barometer to show that they were better than everyone else and like a club to beat up everyone else. Because you're not keeping the Sabbath like you're supposed to. But now, in Jesus, we have to look at the law through new eyes. The Sabbath was made for man. Those are new eyes. Because here, these people had been serving the Sabbath for years. And Jesus says, no, God made it to serve you. You need this rest. It's good for you. You need this time with God. It's good for you. You need to look at this through new eyes. And we have to look at Jesus now through those new eyes. Because he's more than the carpenter from Nazareth. I have one other meditation I want to share with you. And I've... Like I said, I've saved this for last. It's verse 13. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him. Here's what I wrote that morning. Reading these words, I long to be there right now. I do not want to read another book or listen to a sermon or learn of someone's method of prayer, contemplative or otherwise. I wish I could follow Jesus down to the beach and listen to whatever is on his mind. Jesus would not be concerned with being profound or clever. I doubt he would have three points or use alliteration or acronyms or any other preacher gimmicks. If we walked together alone, I would ask him, Lord, what is wrong with me? What do you want from me that I haven't been giving you? From your perspective, what's the most important concern you have for my life? What should have my undivided attention at this stage of my life. Two times in this chapter, Jesus was either preaching or teaching. Mark doesn't give us an indication that Jesus had planned to preach or teach, and in neither case does Mark report what Jesus taught. Not one word of it. Everything was spontaneous. Jesus' words were for that moment. They fit that moment. That is what I want, spontaneity to be with Jesus and hear whatever he has to say for this moment. Jesus stretches the imagination of our faith and he deepens the reservoir of our love. Would you stand with me, please? May the Lord our God, who gave us his Son, grant to us a better vision of him, clearer, truer, richer, wiser, and a greater sensitivity to his presence. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.